Let's pray. God, in this moment, on this day, you have willingly gone to the cross. You've hung there, you have agonized. But God, even in that state of weakness, even in that state of physical torture, you remembered us. Lord, each one of us who are here today and those around this globe, we can have a relationship with God because of what you did upon the cross. And I pray, Lord, that that truth, that message, that would be something that each person here can grasp a hold of. God, I pray for those in this room, perhaps who are struggling with their faith, those who feel distant, those who feel cold from our relationship with you. I pray, God, that this morning that they would realize that that cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was not a cry at all, but it was a call of triumph, and that we would understand that this morning in a deeper way. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say thank you for those of you who are joining us. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we want to say welcome to UCC, um, otherwise known as the uh, church that meets in the theater. We've been working through a series called The Echoes of Easter, and we're going to continue on uh, with that. This morning we're talking about the echoes of abandonment, and we'll talk about that. One of the things we've been doing to recap is we've been talking about what an echo is, right? An echo is two things are needed in an echo, the sound and the reflecting object. Easter is one of those topics that is always comes around, obviously, once a year. And we look at it, and we examine it, and sometimes we go, I know the story. I know it. Like, there's nothing there that you're going to tell me that I don't know, right? But the thing is that the way God orchestrated Easter, the time, everything about it, was for a purpose and for a reason. And it echoes to us. Easter was the sound, and our hearts and our lives are the reflecting object. And every day we live, every day that we draw a breath, there is a truth for us in Easter. Last week we talked about uh, and we looked at Jesus in the garden. And we looked at his prayer and we looked at what was taking place in the garden. We said three things about what was taking place in the garden. First, we we talked about how Jesus was modeling how to suffer for us. Right? Remember we talked about how if you were told you only have a few days left to live, what would you do? You would gather family and friends around you. Why? That's what normal people do. But instead, Jesus goes to the garden. He takes his disciples with him. And he agonizes all night long over what is about to take place. But in agonizing, he is modeling for us something. So in, in the garden, he, told, he teaches us in times of suffering, surround yourself with community. When you are going through a hard time, when you, are, when you feel like you've got nothing else to give... Doing it alone is exactly the opposite of what God intended, is to surround ourselves with community. The second thing is, in times of suffering, seek God's strength. One of the the promises that repeats itself throughout the Bible is that when we call out to God, he is there, right? But that brings us to the third one. In times of suffering, trust God, not the outcome. This is very important. You can never have a relationship with God that's based upon outcome-based faith. And what that means is, Lord, I will trust you, love you, follow you as long as these things happen. And if these things don't happen, I will not, right? That's outcome-based faith, and that's not what the Bible calls us to at all, right? Jesus in the garden says, Lord, not my will but yours. He says, if you can take this cup, God, if you can figure out another way to do what needs to be done, then do the, I, would, I, would, I would love that. But instead, he says, not my will, 
but yours. And we wrapped up looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 to 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Remember we looked at that idea of suffering and glory, right? We all want glory. We want, we want the bigger, better, more, right? But Jesus teaches us in the garden that glory does not come without suffering. That suffering is necessary to transform us, to change us, to make us and mold us into God's image. That's what's necessary. So the times in your life that you are going through deserts, you're going, whatever metaphor you want to place to it, that's part of what God wants to do to change you, to transform you, and hopefully within rise, rise up faith within you. So that's what we looked at last week. But let me recap the series altogether because we've been talking about different things over that, right? We've been talking about different echoes. So the first week we looked at the triumphal entry. And we said, this is Jesus' proclamation of his kingship, right? Remember, for almost two years, two and a half, two and three quarter years, Jesus has been hiding what he was. He, he didn't really come out and say it, right? But in that one moment, in the Passion Week, the beginning of the Passover week, Jesus comes in riding on a donkey and he's proclaiming himself king. We looked at the Last Supper and we looked at this concept of covenant. And Jesus says, this is a new covenant. This morning, we are going to be celebrating communion. This is a new covenant that Jesus makes in his blood. And we talked about how covenant has, has everything to do about the cross. You can't understand the cross and the brutality of the cross without understanding the covenant that God made with himself in Genesis chapter 15. We looked at the Mount of Olives last week and on how to suffer. All three of these themes will find their fulfillment on the cross this morning you're going to see that jesus is going to show us how all of these fit together in this one moment in time if you have your bibles um and if you don't it'll be on the screen anyways uh we're going to take a look at matthew chapter 27 and we're going to take a look at at the cry that jesus utters on the cross which i will i will say to you that i think has been misunderstood I don't think that we've understood exactly what Jesus is doing. And I hope this morning that as we examine this deeper and look at tradition and Jewish tradition, we're going to see that the cry on the cross was not a cry of abandon, but, but a cry of victory. And, and, and I'll show you why this morning. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When and some of those standing there heard this. They said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran up and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered to Jesus a drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The scene, it's in your mind, isn't it? Jesus has been beaten. He has, he has been He's been whipped. He has been, he's undergone the ultimate form of human punishment and torture that can possibly be understood. He's been hanging on the cross now for several hours. Crucifixion was not, a, uh, was not a, an easy death. It was a death by drowning. You drowned in your own fluids. And the cross is situated in such a way the Romans were, were brilliant in regards to create this form of torture. Jesus is drowning in his own fluids. The, 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 the thieves on either side of him are drowning. That's how the cross works, right? And this is Jesus' final words. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we hear those words. And even the, the hearers heard those words, but they didn't even understand what Jesus was trying to do. And I want to say to you, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not a cry of abandonment. It is not a cry of defeat. It is not a cry of separation between God and, and God the Son and God the Father. Instead, it is a cry of victory. Because with Jesus' last words, he says, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. What we need to do this morning is we need to kind of unpack this cry. Because in this cry, Jesus is teaching. And of course, only Jesus can teach on the cross. Only Jesus, in that moment of absolute pain and agony, can continue to teach us on the cross. And I want to show you something this morning. Because what Jesus said, what he did, was for a reason. And when you dig a little deeper, all of a sudden the cross gets transformed. It gets transformed. Many of you have heard that in that moment of the cross, when, God, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What many have said, this is when God separates himself from Jesus. This is when God turns his back on Jesus. Did you know that that's not biblical? That sentiment, that thought's not biblical. I have spent literally three and a half weeks going through scripture after scripture, emailing pastors I know. I'm like, where do we find this from? Where does this concept come from? And it comes from hymns. It comes from songs. Now, what they're trying to do is they're trying to convey something. But what they tend to do is they create this image of Jesus alone on the cross, separated from God the Father and God the Spirit. But if you understand the Trinity, and if you understand what Jesus is actually saying here, you need to know something. God is not separating himself from Jesus at that moment in time. The cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not a cry of abandonment. In Jesus' final breath, he's still teaching. And as always, whenever Jesus teaches, those who hear it at the moment don't get it. It takes time for them to kind of filter back going, oh, I finally understand it. So let's take a look at what's actually happening here. The cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting scripture, and some of you know this, that Jesus is referencing Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 1 to 2 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer me. By night, but I find no rest. Jesus is pulling the viewers to Psalm 22, and he does so for a reason. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 because Psalm 22 is going to show us what is exactly happening on the cross. Not the traditional understanding of what's happening on the cross, but a deeper understanding of what Jesus was, was, was enduring and what he was going through. But also, the victory of the cross. See, we hear this cry and we see this verse and we go, okay, I understand. Jesus is referencing Psalm 22. Well, what you need to do is you need to read the rest of Psalm 22. Because when you read the rest of Psalm 22, all of a sudden, what's happening in Psalm 22 comes into sharp focus. Because then Jesus, what he's doing, what he's accomplishing on the cross becomes something different. Something more glorious. Not just this pitiful this, this agonizing cry of separation, which I, I, you know, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nobody says, Jesus, come on, lighten up, buddy. No one says, Jesus, aren't you being a little dramatic? Jesus, come on, like, like, like be a man, right? Rub some dirt on it, Jesus. Let, let's, let's go, right? Nobody says that. Why? Because Jesus endured excruciating pain. So when he cries this out, people are going, yeah, that makes sense. But Jesus isn't crying it out because that's what's happening. He's crying it out because he's helping his, his readers, his, the readers of today, and, and those viewing it to see what he really is trying to do here. 
So when we look at Psalm 22, a couple things pop out of us. Actually, quite a few things pop out of us. When you read Psalm 22 in your Bibles, it will say this. For the director of music to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. Psalm, the book of Psalms is a book of songs. Now, we know that David did not write all of them. He did write some of them, but he did not write all of them. But the ones that David wrote, he will put his, he will, he will, he will sign. So the Psalm 22 is written by David. And of course, David is the king. He is, this is the king's Psalm, right? And of course, we see that Jesus, even in a mocking tone, was seen as the king. Right? Of course, Pilate, not realizing what he's doing, right? In John chapter 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, look at this. Many of the Jews read, read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Pilate's trying to make sure that everybody gets what's going on here. The chief priest of the Jews uh, protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but... This man claimed to be the king of the Jews, Pilate answered. What I have written, I have written. In other words, Pilate said, it's done. So on top of the cross where Jesus is being crucified, this sign signifying Jesus, king of the Jews. Remember I said to you the triumphal entry that Jesus' kingship was going to find its way into the cross? Pilate, not a Christian, uh, not even somebody well-versed in Jewish history, understood that Jesus was a king. So the first thing you need to understand about Psalm 22 is written by the king, okay? The next thing you need to understand about the event of the crucifixion, remember we talked about this in the covenant? From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Remember when darkness came over the land again back in Genesis? In Genesis chapter 15, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Remember I said to you that everything that's happening on the cross is because of God's covenant with Abram. Remember that. Remember the covenant ritual. For those of you who might have missed this one, the covenant ritual was Abraham took animals, he cut them in half, and put either half on on either side. And remember, I said to you that what happens then is the blood from these carcasses flow into the middle, so it creates a path of blood. And in a covenant ceremony, what take place is the weaker party, the lesser party, would walk through these animal halves. And what they are saying is, if I break this covenant, let what's happened to these animals happen to me. Abram is getting ready to walk the path of blood. But instead, darkness falls and God himself walks through this path of blood. And God says in that moment, in that one, in that one moment in time, says this, Abram, I'm going to bless you. But whatever sin that you commit, whatever way you break the covenant with me, I'm going to pay the price. I'm walking the path of blood. I am saying to you, Abram, that you get the blessings from this covenant and I get the curses. Jesus hanging on the cross was because of the covenant God made with himself. Jesus is finally paying the price for the breaking of the covenant, not just by Abram, but by every one of us in this room. Every time that we sin, Every time that we break God's law, every time that we mess up, every, whatever word you want to, whatever phrase you want to put it, every time that takes place, Jesus bears that on the cross. He is bearing the punishment of covenant. Now, take a look at this as well, too. This one actually kind of shocked me that I totally had missed this one. Whenever you read the Bible, pay attention to some of the details because the details there are for a reason. 
Sometimes the writer will, will add something, whether it's a geographic place, a time of day, or a person, or the person's father. The reason they're adding those details is because it's going to help you to understand the context. Now, for most of us, I believe, in this room, we are Gentiles, which means we don't understand some of the traditions that the story is emerging out of. Now, look at this here, okay? About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, right? Why does the writer tell you what time of day it is? Isn't it sufficient enough to say that Jesus hung on the cross for a few hours? Isn't it sufficient enough to say that Jesus hung on the cross for several hours? But instead, the writer puts in there at around 3 in the afternoon. You know why that's interesting? It's because to the Jews, 3 in the afternoon was the time of prayer. Look in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. On one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple. When? At the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Jesus on the cross would have seen some of, the, uh, some of the priests and the rabbis putting a shawl over their head and praying. Why? It's three in the afternoon. This is the time of prayer. The cry from the cross was not a cry from the cross, but it is Jesus praying. This is why the writer writes in, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. I never knew that. I had never once understood that. But the reason Jesus is doing it, the reason the writer is telling you at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice because the writer is trying to tell you something. Jesus is praying. He's praying. And he's praying scripture. That's what they did back then is they would recite scriptures in their prayers. Jesus is not crying because of his abandonment, because of his, his pain, because of his suffering. He's going, okay, guys, it's prayer time. And Jesus on the cross prays his final prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what I love about this is you wouldn't think of that as a prayer, would you? You would think of that as an accusation towards God. You would think of that as a proclamation against God. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, my prayer is real. Sometimes our prayers can be a little too pretty, I think. Sometimes we think that God is so, he gets so offended, right? Like, we kind of think of God like Twitter, right? You say anything on Twitter and you will have 30 people telling you why you're wrong. The sun is shining. Well, it's not shining. It's kind of cloudy out there. What, what, what's wrong with you? Go outside, right? Like, it's just, it's vicious what happens out there, right? There, it, there is a viciousness. So you're smiling. Yeah, that happened to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you get that, right? Jesus' prayer is a prayer of reality. And sometimes all God wants with us is like, start praying like you mean it. And sometimes our prayers need to be angry. You read the Psalms? What does David say to God? God, are you deaf? Are you blind? Are, are, are you sleeping? Are you away? What is wrong with you, God? Don't you see I'm surrounded by my enemies? Don't you see that my life is about to be taken from me? Where are the promises you gave, made to me, God? These are the prayers of David, King David, a man after God's own heart. We, had, we need to understand sometimes God is way tougher than we understand. And sometimes our prayers need to come from a place of truth. And sometimes that truth goes like this. God, I don't know what's going on. Have you abandoned me? Where are you, God? It's in those moments of, of, of just absolute despair that we speak that. Because sometimes we go, God, Lord, thank you so much for loving me. And we were, I'm so happy you're in my life. And we're smiling, but we're weeping on the inside. Jesus is praying on the cross at three in the afternoon. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not crying out because he's in agony. He's not crying out because God's abandoned him. He's not crying out for any of the reasons that maybe we would have cried out. He's crying out because at three in the afternoon, he's praying because it's the time 
of prayer. So when you understand that the cry is actually a prayer, suddenly something changes. You go, okay, so if he's praying here, what's he praying about? What's he trying to say? Remember, he takes us back to Psalm 22. And that's what's going to help us to understand what Psalm 22 is about. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 to 43, okay? We, we read already, but look at this. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they say, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Look at the parallel to Psalm 22. 6 to 6, that's not right, but you'll, you'll in your Bible, but you'll see Look what it says. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you see the parallels here? What's going on? I wonder if Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, as he's hearing this, as he's thinking this, he's thinking back to David writing Psalm 22. He's like, oh, David, David. I, this is happening now. And in that moment in time, he prays, he, he, he cries out in that prayer. Look at uh, John chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been fulfilled, finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty, right? Jesus is thirsty. He's thirsty. He's, he's parched from because of what happened. And look at Psalm 22. My mouth is dried up like a pot's shirt. My, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. The parallels between Psalm 22 and the agony that Jesus is going on the cross, that's why Jesus is bringing us to this moment in time here. Now, look at this here. This is, this is very interesting. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with him two others on one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Now, look at Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, because I want to point something out to you. This is David writing thousands of years before Jesus is crucified. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. When did David have his, his hands and his feet pierced? When did this happen to David? The response is, it didn't happen to David. David is writing under the, uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is prophesying about the coming Messiah. David never had his hands and feet pierced. Dave, this never took place. David, David ran from his life. He, he, I'm sure he got cuts from swords in battle. But David's feet and his hands were never pierced. Look at this here. David is writing this thousands of years before he understands what Je- what's about to happen to Jesus. And at this time, I was trying to, I was trying to figure out uh, timelines here. And I didn't quite get to where I want to. But most commentators say that crucifixion didn't appear at this time in history. So David didn't even know what a crucifixion was. But in verse 16 of Psalm 22, he says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains circles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. David's writing this, not understanding completely the fulfillment of it. Jesus on the cross is drawing the the, the audience, the people, to Psalm 22 because he wants them to know. David wrote this. He wrote this for me. He wrote this about me. Not knowing me, not knowing the, the, the act of crucifixion. He wrote this for me. 
And finally, take a look at this here in verse uh, John chapter 19, verse uh, 23 to 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarments remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide who will get it. Look at Psalm 22, verse 17, 18. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, when did anybody ever cast lots for David's clothing? They didn't. David was writing about an event he never even witnessed. He was writing about something that was going to take place thousands of years later that he didn't quite understand. The reason Jesus cries out, the reason Jesus prays at 3 in the afternoon, Psalm 22 And I believe the only reason he got the first line out, that's all the energy he had left. Because in the next breath, he says, it is finished and gives up his spirit. But he's trying to draw us back to this psalm. Now let's talk about the rest of the story. Psalm 22, verses 1 to 18, it's called the lament. In the Hebrew uh, scriptures, in the Hebrew uh, way of looking at it, they call this the lament. And of course, when you read the first 18 verses, it is exactly what we've been talking about. It is the lament of the righteous man. It is the lament of the righteous man uh, suffering. It is the lament of someone who is suffering excruciating pain. But the rest of the story, Psalm 22, verses 19 to 31, is called deliverance and praise. This psalm is broken into two pieces. The first is the lament. The second is, is the song of praise. And psalms actually tend to be that way. That's, their, that's, their, um, that's how it works as far as the, the, the way they phrase them. It's, it's, it's always about the lament. It's always about the cry. It's always about the pain and the suffering. But then at the end of it, they come and they bring it back to God. Even in agony, as I said before, Jesus is teaching us. Now let me show you what he's teaching us in Psalm 22. This is the epilogue of Psalm 22. God does not abandon those who cry out to him. The cry on the cross was a cry of abandonment. But do you know who abandoned Jesus? His friends, his family, his disciples, but not God. Because look what Psalm 22 says. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. The writer, David, is is using metaphor. He's using images. But what is he saying? God does not abandon those who call out for him. God does not abandon those who cry out. You can be in the worst moment of your life. You can be in suffering. You can be in doubt. You can be in deadness of your spirit. But if you cry out for God, God will not abandon you. How many times have I heard as a pastor people saying to me, Oh, I'm sure God can forgive others, but he can't forgive me. Oh, I'm sure God is okay with other people, uh, with them, but I, not me. We talk about this on Sunday morning at UCC. We say, don't compare your insides to other people's outside. You look around the room, you see people singing and worshiping, maybe raising hands, closing eyes, and you go, I wish I had that. But you don't understand what's in here. You don't know what's in there either. We don't compare our insides to other people's outsides. God will not abandon those who cry out for him. The second thing that we need to understand about uh, Psalm 22 is nothing is beyond God's reach. Look at verses 27 to 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Easter, the cross, the Passion Week, everything that took place, took place because God wanted to take place that way. 
Nothing happened in the Easter week that was, was outside of God's provision, his, his plan, his purpose, nothing. What God did, how he orchestrated everything, was because he wanted to show us something. He wanted to paint a picture of his mercy and his grace. He wanted to paint a picture of the cost of sin. He wanted to paint a picture of our relationship restored with him. He wanted to paint a picture of Abram's covenant fulfilled upon the cross. Nothing is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond God's reach. Do you ever have a family member or someone close to you that you, all you wish is they would love Jesus, they'd know the way that you do, and you think, but it's impossible. Nobody is beyond God's reach. And finally, the future is known to our creator. Look how Psalm 22 ends with verse 29 to 31. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. What does Jesus say? It is finished. In some translations, it is accomplished. It is done. The cost the penalty for sin, the covenant that God made with Abraham, all of that curse, all of that sin, it is paid for. It is finished. And I love, I I, I have to see the parallels with Jesus using the very last line, it is done, he has done it. Jesus proclaims, it is finished. Let me close with one last scripture. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. No, Hebrews 2, 9 and 11 changed it because I like this one better. Just listen to this for a second. But we do see Jesus who was made lower than angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are being made holy are all uh, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. This is the triumph of the cross that we sons and daughters are being made, are, are being created in glory. The cross the, the cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not because God forsook Jesus, not that God would forsake any one of us. The cry from the cross was the cry of a righteous man. The cry from the cross is Psalm 22. The cry of the cross is Psalm 22, made life in the Lord Jesus. David, writing thousands of years before Jesus existed, was, was showing what would take place. David was saying... God's salvation, the proclamation of what God was going to do, is going to take place. And it's going to happen. And, 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 and as a very last word, it is accomplished. It is finished. God has done what no human could do. You could never be good enough. You could never be perfect enough. You could never say enough prayers. You could not give enough away to make God happy. It's not in us. But it was in Jesus. Good Friday is truly Good Friday. Because on the cross, Jesus prays and teaches and shows us that God did not abandon him, did not forsake him, did not forsake us, did not abandon us. Let's pray.
as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, I just want you to take a moment just uh, to think, to pray. We will be celebrating communion. But the Bible tells us that communion is, is a sacred act. It is a time of reflection upon, upon what Jesus did, what he accomplished. And Paul even goes on to say that we do this in remembrance. We are reminded every time we take communion that, that a payment had to be made for sin. And that payment was with Jesus on the cross. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, my prayer is that you right now, right now, can cry out to God. And maybe your cry looks very similar to Jesus' God, have you forgotten me? God, have you misplaced me, displaced me, replaced me? This morning, right now, you can cry out to God and say, God, I need you so badly. The passion that I once had, the, the way that I used to think about you, the joy that I used to have, I don't have it anymore. God, I've sinned so much. I have, I have fallen so far. Can you love me, God? Can you, can you still reach down to where I am? And the answer from God to all of us, through all of time, to all of creation, is yes. God did not abandon Jesus upon the cross. He does not abandon you in your times of suffering. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. You are sons and daughters of the Most High God being made into glory. And you cannot understand glory without suffering. You cannot understand faith without doubt. Easter is a beautiful time to recommit, to rethink, to re-say, Lord, I need you. I desperately need you. I don't know what the outcome is. I don't know what the future holds, but God, I trust you. Lord, I pray for each person in this room as we continue to worship and as we, as we come to the, the, emblem, the emblems, the elements, Lord, I pray, God, that as we hold them, that we are reminded of your cry from the cross, the cry of a righteous man, not abandoned by God, but instead awaiting God's deliverance, awaiting God's rescue. I pray, God, that each person here this morning would feel that, would know that that they are not abandoned by God. And Lord, I pray especially, because I feel this, Lord, I feel that a few people need to hear this this morning, that their sin does not define their relationship with God. Their past does not define their future with God. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would free some in the room from the shackles of guilt and shame, that you would free in this room right now, in Jesus' name, those who were burdened by their sins. I pray, God, they would cry out to you and that you would answer them and they would know that they are forgiven. They are not forgotten and they are not abandoned. I ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen.